We're still in person. Woo! It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to be with you too, Seth. Welcome everyone to No Experts Allowed. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It is, I guess when this is releasing, the 8th day of Christmas? I think so. Yeah. Still in the midst of it. And, also Seth, Happy New Year. Thank you. It is 2022. I can't believe it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What a year. I said this to you before we recorded this, but 2021, even though it still has been terrible, does feel like the first year since maybe like 2015 that didn't feel markedly worse than the year before it. (laughs) So I guess we'll take that win. I agree with that. I just hope that that trend continues. Me too. Like next year's just a little bit better. But I I thought that that was going to be the case in 2020. Yeah. Look where that got us. <laughs> I know. Uh, but first, I have a very important question for you. All right. What would you do in this particular situation? If you could, would you want to change your name, but everybody knows your new name? To avoid the confusion, or would you just keep your name the same? I, I stumped him. I'm just making sure I under I like, understand the question. Okay. <laughs> well, if you change your name in this case, everybody knows that that magically that that's your that that's so your the name. question is: Do you want to change? Do we want to change my name at like no cost to me? Exactly. That's well said. Well, I think I would lean towards that only because I've actually been thinking about going by a different name instead of going by Jonathan, going by my first two initials, going by JD instead. I'm on the fence about it, but I've applied to some programs and things, and I've put it down as my preferred name just to give it a try. So we'll see how it goes. But I think for that that reason only, because I'm exploring that possibility, I'll say sure. I'll still I'll still respond to Jonathan, not John though. That's not my name. I didn't know you were considering being JD. I like that. If only I was going to be a lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. JD Fuller, JD. There's time. There's not enough time for that, bud. <laughs> what about you? Would you change your name? See, I have no idea what I would change my name to. So that leads me to think maybe I would just keep it the same. On that note, should I read the scripture for us? Yes. Right, okay. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, from the New Revised Standard Version. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Thanks, Jonathan. The only comment that I wanted to make right before we start is I extended our reading just to include three verses before what's usually called the Christ hymn and then one verse after. So we have a little bit more context. Part of my fear with the Christ hymn is that it often gets interpreted in isolation. So this is a, this is a small attempt to at least avoid that a little bit. Yeah. I think this is a well-known passage in one of the commentaries that I consulted called this maybe the most studied passage in all of the New Testament. So with that, is there anything that jumped out at you? I think from the hymn itself, the idea that stood out to me clearly this time around... (laughs) was the idea that Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead emptied himself. But just thinking about a lot of the conversations that we have on our podcast, Seth, about our own experiences and our own social location, conversations about privilege and how that plays out in our lives, I think we have a good model in Jesus of what it means to use your privilege in a way that is disruptive to your own privilege if that makes sense that's just the idea that came through for me but i think what actually stood out to me a little bit more was because of the choice he made to include a little bit more on the front and back end reminding myself that this these verses though they are theological in their interpretation often and kind of put up on this pedestal of the high church discourse and you know, who Jesus is and the story of how he came to be among us. It was originally written in support of a message to a community about how they were figuring out how to live together. And presumably, I mean, this would be like you and me having a conversation and me citing like some Bruce Springsteen lyrics or something like that. Like, presumably this community was familiar with this song because it's written a little differently. And so Paul's citing something that would have been known to them rather than like, oh, look at this new stuff I'm putting all together. (laughs) Just thinking about what that would mean in the community itself. It's like, how can we engage this practice that we already are familiar with to learn something more about not just who Jesus is, but how we are supposed to be in community together as a result. Your point about the way that we use this in our Christologies, our very technical Christologies, I think is is well taken because that's the way that the text gets gets chopped up and used. And I think you're exactly right that Paul uses this like in a in a pastoral letter to a community, and it's that context that we lose. I think that's important important to hold those two together. I'll add just a tiny little bit of information about the community in Philippi that Paul's writing to. Philippi is used almost as like 
a retirement community for Roman soldiers. That after you've served your time in the Roman military for years and years, you would be given a small plot of land in Philippi that you could tend and care for and kind of live there and the rest of your life, essentially. But just like today, there's only so much land to go around. Mm -hmm. So you can't just gift land to Roman soldiers in their retirement. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You're not just like, okay, this is yours now. You always have to take that land from somebody else who's already farming it Mm -hmm. and using it. Which is just one of the ways that these people in Philippi are being exploited. They're being taken advantage of. And I think we can also... Think of the ways that Roman soldiers exploited people while they were soldiers mm-hmm. at war on their way to, to fight battles. That maybe some of those tendencies are active even in their retirement. So maybe they're not just exploiting people for their land, but they're actively exploiting people like who then later farm the land and when they buy things from them in the right. market. So there's like there's there's other kinds of exploitation that are happening in this community too. It'd be interesting to know too, and obviously, I mean, some some scholarship may shed more light on this than others, but like whether or not there were Roman soldiers that were part of the Christian community that was growing there and what how that dynamic would play out among them too. Is I mean, even the passage we cited a few weeks ago about John the Baptist, there was a decree to Roman soldiers who were in in Palestine at the time, in Israel, thinking about, you know, making sure they don't exploit people. Like, just do what you're supposed to do and don't go beyond that. And the fact that that needed to be a corrective makes it seem like that was a pretty widespread practice, right? There's always a reason for the policy. Sometimes it's a strange one, but other times it might be a little bit more clear cut as to why, why something like that gets put in place. When we were in college, maybe you remember this, in our, in the policies for our dorms was a specific line that you cannot build stadium-style seating in your dorm room. And I'm positive that that's one of those cases that you can just assume that someone constructed stadium-style right. seating yeah. in their <laughs> dorm room and they had to make that exact policy for that. Yeah, that's certainly true in my work now too when we encounter things that aren't technically prohibited but are not supposed to be happening it's just like yeah we need to write something about that about how this is going to be in our residence halls yes i think that like you said that's a good example of that happening in our passage with john the baptist that's an example of of the exploitation that soldiers are probably already participating in i haven't thought much about What's our very last verse, at least in the way that I've cut our scripture? Because I think for me, I stop at verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I just go, okay, amen. I put my stamp on it, mm-hmm. and then I move on. But Paul's not done there. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and it feels, it feels appropriate that this, like, huge confession this song of praise and this way that we identify who jesus is and how jesus came to be that feels like the end of the conversation most of the time when in actuality it's part of and actually then you know as we say often too 
There's a therefore. We need to figure out what it's there for. So there's all this stuff, and our last verse is Paul transitioning from this reflection on who Jesus is into what it then means for the community living it living it out too. And I think, like we've talked about, the Bible sometimes becoming the end of the conversation rather than the beginning. Hmm. We can do that with creeds and songs and theological reflections too. But all this stuff is intended to draw us further into community with one another, not be the stopping point in the conversation. Yeah, that's helpful because that's exactly what Paul does. Like he uses this to then talk about how how the community needs to live. He uses Jesus as an example. Mm-hmm. If we zoom out a little bit in Philippians, I think that's sort of the structures. The first part is Paul's like, hey, you need to do this. Like, you need to not exploit people and, and re- regard people who are lowly as, as significant. And then in in the second chapter, he's like, look, this is how Jesus does it. And then I, I think this is off the top of my head, so, so please correct me. In the third chapter, he gives his own example of how he's trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And then, like, and then the fourth chapter is like even more exhortations to like how to figure out how to live. Yeah. yeah, he's like, look, this is the example we have in Jesus. This is how I've tried to live it out. And then again, he follows it up with like, look, we, this is what we have to do now. Yeah. It's a good argument. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, Paul's, Paul's rhetoric is excellent. I feel like we're right on what's the point. Yeah, let's go there. So how do we live? This is a big question. So how do we live as people who worship this God who emptied himself, took the form of a slave, who was humble, who's obedient even to the point of death? But also, how do we do that without also requiring that same obedience from people who are already at the point of death, who are already humbled? who are already participating in modern-day slavery? That was a huge question. Yeah. So immediately, Seth, the first thing that comes to mind is the work of Howard Thurman, especially in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, where he talks about Jesus being, I'll paraphrase him slightly to be a little more gender-inclusive, but Jesus being the one for those who have their backs up against the wall. And... We get at the end of this hymn to the point where every knee and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the starting point is not Jesus coming in the form of a governor, an emperor, someone who enslaves others. Jesus comes and starts among those who need an advocate and a companion and need love and compassion most. And yeah, sure, we all need to get swept up in what the Spirit is up to in the world. We all need to be redeemed and restored through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But so often I think our emphasis on keeping it open to everybody denies the reality of the world into which Christ entered and how Christ entered the world with and among those people of God who were struggling with their own backs against the wall. Mm -hmm. 
And so as someone who doesn't have my back against the wall (laughs) in most (laughs) situations that I'm in, I think about how I too, kind of like we started after reading the passage, how too can I think about the things that I have that can be offered up in service of those who are on the margins. But not only so, how can I offer those things up in a way that draws me into relationship and into community with those that are on the margins too? Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing to be a benevolent person who gives gives stuff to people who are over there but not actually letting it play into your life. It's another thing to be born among the people whose mm-hmm. exploitation and whose harm you're trying to end. <laughs> as Jesus was. One of the commentaries that I read about this passage saw it as distinctly anti-imperial. That the one who thinks he's in the form of God, but does regard equality with God as something to be exploited, is Caesar. But Caesar doesn't empty himself at all. Mm -hmm. Caesar doesn't take the form of a slave, but rather enslaves people. And it seems like what you're saying is that this this is so radical for people who are in power. Like it's not even something that Caesar would even dream of doing, yeah. right? And that maybe even for us as people who aren't who aren't Caesars but have power, like this is this is about living in in an entirely new way that the world thinks is maybe a little crazy giving up power like identifying with people who are who are on the margins yeah identifying with those who have their backs against the wall yeah and it's also this reminder that power is not binary right power is not a light switch Hmm. there are all sorts of scales and spectrums on which we exist that depending on our identities and our personalities and other things about us, most of which are out of our control, we might have more influence in a particular situation or have more benefits of how society is ordered around us. And so even within particular communities, even among oppressed communities, there are people who experience more power than others too. And even among privileged communities, that is also the case as well. Like it's not about saying oh, I have privilege, therefore nothing's hard for me, or nothing's, you know, nothing is, is warranting hard work, or nothing is kind of taken from me. It's that in certain circumstances, the way that our identities intersect, to play off of the idea of intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw, the ways that our identities intersect have a net positive for how we interact with the world, as opposed to communities of people who are, who are black, who are women or other sort of gender minorities, uh, who are queer, who may not be physically able to complete some tasks or have different cognitive abilities. There's all these different things that don't just exist on their own. It's not a light switch as to whether or not we have power or not. But in some ways, there are always spaces where we can exercise influence for some of us on larger scales than others and the question becomes 
how do we get out of our mindset of even just saying, I have power, how do I use it for good? And rather say, how can I be in relationship with and in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed? Because that appears to be the framework that Jesus used when establishing himself as God incarnate in the form of a baby who needed to flee to Egypt <laughs> as a refugee, a, a political religious asylee uh, with, his, with his parents before he even knew what the world was like around him because his life was in danger. That's how God comes into the world. Not as the person persecuting, person executing, the person wielding immense power, but as the person who needs to flee someone who's doing all of that. I just want to highlight your point about the way that having power and privilege doesn't erase our hardships because I often think that's where this conversation can end. Someone says, oh, you have, you have this, this privilege. And the other person says, well, my, my life's hard too. And that's the end of it. Yeah. You know, they don't, they don't want to engage any further. But what I think was so helpful about what you just said is how everyone has some power, varying amounts, in varying situations but what is always constant is the way that we can identify with people who don't have power yeah and I mean we see this all the time I mean most situations of bullying in schools are children who don't have power in one circumstance finding somewhere else to exercise it hmm. having hmm. control and authority in the situation when other circumstances are far from under their control or in their power. Obviously, on larger and grander and far more significant scales, that plays out too in, in other spaces of recognizing how can I use my power, give up my power, or forget about it to hmm. be among and for those who don't have it in this particular setting. I thought you were going to say in this particular situation, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah, I think I missed, I missed that opportunity. That was a good one. I hear this sort of strange echo in this Christ hymn with the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Mm. It's not that people who have their backs against the wall are kept at arm's length but rather that that's exactly who God identifies with, who God is. Mm. And that both of those have a call for us to identify with those people too. And it's through our identification that both were changed and the, other, the others are changed too. Like it's mutually beneficial that helps us and it helps them. I think sometimes we we often we do like a a risk benefit analysis and think like clinically, like, oh, I'll help them. Or the other way, like I receive help. But it's so all that's so simplistic to me. It's like it's it's almost always just like 
like a symbiosis. Both people are helped, and both people are, or in some situations, unfortunately, both people are harmed. Mm. Yeah. But in both of those situations, it's being with the people who are hungry, thirsty, naked, imprisoned, dying, sick. And we actually see God. Yeah. Amen. We need to pray. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. Our prayer today comes from the Church of England. This Sunday is Jesus Naming Sunday. So that picks up again in our prayer. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was circumcised in obedience to the law for our sake, and given the name that is above every name, give us grace faithfully to bear that name, to worship him in the freedom of the Spirit, and to proclaim that name as the Savior of the world, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we're so glad to start this new year off with all of you in this wild, crazy community. Next week, we're returning back to our virtual format, sadly. But we'll have some fun exploring the first chapter of John's Gospel. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it, J.D. did change your name let's see i'll try to give you an alternative what have you changed your name to crap bag crap bag <laughs> like on friends <laughs> when mike changes his name to crap bag. i've not watched friends oh but if you wanted to change your name to crap bag i'd call you that well phoebe changes her name to some like this weird thing so then because she learns that you can change your name to anything that you want but Mike doesn't like her name to be Princess Phoebe Buffet Banana Hammock. So he changes his name to Crap Bag. Like, and then she to force her to change it back. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I'm not a fan of friends, so. <laughs> you know, I'm not really either. I don't think it's aged that well. But I think that that episode where he changes his name to Crap Bag is hilarious. Okay. Because it's Paul Rudd. Oh. Paul Rudd. He looks identical. Yeah. He's not aged. I think he's, if anything, he's aged backwards since then. Yes, yes. <laughs> this week's episode brought to you by Sexiest Man Alive 2021, Paul Rudd. <laughs>